0: Hello everybody, you are listening to the podcast Ukraine Decoded. I am Viktor Kovalenko from the United States. As a former Ukrainian journalist and veteran, I organize expert discussions about the ongoing Russian war against Ukraine. My guest today is Peter Dickinson from Kyiv. He is a British national who lives in Ukraine for more than 20 years. He is a publisher of two local English-language magazines, Business Ukraine and Lviv Today. Peter Dickinson also edits the political blog Ukraine Alert, that belongs to Atlantic Council, an American think tank. Welcome to my podcast, Peter, and my first question, how life is in Kiev during the war?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think in Kiev life life goes on, it's not too dramatic. I mean, we have a lot of small day-to-day nuances, so the main thing is power that we often lose electricity that is annoying perhaps or, or but it's not a major issue I mean, it's not a tragedy the biggest threat we have, of course, is the regular air raids, the airstrikes, and they always bring the sense of the unknown, because you don't know how serious it will be, you don't know how many of these airstrikes will, will succeed, uh, will hit their targets, so there's always that sense of the un- uncertainty whenever we have an air raid, uh, which keeps you a little bit anxious and nervous. But in general, I think life is fairly normal, fairly stable in Kiev. I don't live in the city centre, I live outside town, so I don't go in. To the Kiev every day, but generally the mood in town is quite normal. There's, you know, shops are busy, cafes, restaurants are busy. The power cuts can be seen in town because it's darker. People go home early because of the curfew, but really it's not that different. I mean, I think the real uh, horror stories start when you get nearer to the front lines in the south and the east of the country.
0: Last week, President of Ukraine Volodymyr Zelensky reminded his citizens that there is no time to relax yet and that the war is still around. Did people get used to the war?
1: Um, I don't know if they're relaxed, but I think, yeah, people did get used to it. I mean, I think think human beings can get used to any situation, um, however dramatic, however severe. And of course, people have got used to the situation here now. They have acclimatized to the war. So I think it's it's always useful to remind people that this is, you know, the, 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 how serious the situation is. Again, you know, there's different um, experiences. Those who are living close to the war. Uh, the front lines, rather, are very, very immediately aware of the war. They are under daily bombardment in many cases. That's not the case in Kiev. So I think people living in Kiev and, of course, living in western Ukraine, in southwestern Ukraine, are a long way from the front lines. So it it doesn't do any harm to remind them. But I think people, you can't totally forget about it. It's not like, I think, before 2022, It was much easier to forget that Ukraine was a country at war. Since the full-scale invasion began, it's become much more all-consuming theme for people in their everyday lives.
0: On this February will be a year since the Russian invasion started and the Ukrainians hang on. What is your summary of the year? What major things do you see?
1: Well, I think the two main themes are Russian failure and Ukrainian success. Um, and Ukraine was not expected by anyone to survive. Most observers from the Western world, most military observers, most experts, including very senior members of the American military, including um, analysts and military personnel and, and intelligence experts from most Western countries, were unanimous or were certainly there was a consensus that Ukraine would maybe last a week, maybe last a few days, uh, but not longer. That was assumed. And so we saw before the war began a great reluctance to arm Ukraine, um, a sense that it was it was futile to arm Ukraine, and also the idea that if they gave weapons to Ukraine, the weapons would simply be taken by Russia in a few days once Russia had taken over Ukraine. So um, the weapons that were sent to Ukraine were almost exclusively the kind of weapons that you would use in a guerrilla war, a, a partisan war, after occupation. So there was very little faith in Ukraine across the board. Of course, Russia had no faith. Russia fully expected Ukraine to collapse. But uh, I think that can be assumed. What was interesting is that the West, which had spent a lot of money and spent a lot of time investing in Ukraine's military reforms, still felt that Ukraine would simply collapse. Now, Ukraine, on the contrary, has proven to be far, far stronger. Militarily, it's far stronger. The Ukrainian military has performed exceptionally well. I think also the Ukrainian state has performed very well. If you look at institutions like the, the Postal Service, Ukrapošta, I've seen numerous people commenting that Ukrapošta still performs better during wartime than most European postal services during peacetime. For example, the Ukrainian railway service has performed exceptionally. The Ukrainian banking system performs wonderfully and still remains a very convenient form of banking system. Many Ukrainians who left Ukraine for the European Union uh, became refugees have commented since they returned that the... It's much easier to use the banking system in Ukraine than it is in Poland or the Czech Republic or France or Germany. Uh, The banking system is much more user friendly, much more digital, much more convenient, even though there's a major, major war on. So there's a lot of different aspects, I think, where Ukraine has shown itself to be a far more resilient society and a far more resilient country than people expected, leading with the military, but not only the military. On the other hand, you've got Russia, which is uh, not yet, I think it's too early to say it's entirely failed, but certainly has failed in its uh, key goals, has suffered a lot of very pretty humiliating defeats militarily, and has been exposed as a, an empty vessel. The Russian military, this military that would long been held up as like the number two in the world and long been uh, portrayed as a formidable force, has actually been shown to be very weak riddled with corruption very ineffective at coordinating major operations full of divisions they are as we approach the one-year mark they're reliant on north korea on iran recent reports suggest also china for their their supplies their technical equipment and essential parts they are recruiting soldiers from prisons which is pretty much scraping the very very bottom of the barrel in any society um, so you do have to wonder what aspects of Russia are actually true. If this the military has always been the backbone of the Russian society, has always been the center of all its propaganda and has always been used to justify a lot of other aspects of Russian society, which are not very impressive in terms of social services, in terms of consumer services, in terms of standards of living. Russians have always been told, well, it doesn't matter or it's understandable because we are a military superpower. And look at this wonderful army we have. Now we actually see that that actually was a myth, it's not a Russia. it's clearly very far from a, a military superpower. And in fact, I think you can see now in the region, a lot of countries are starting to understand that they really have very little to fear from Russia.
0: My next question is about Russia. By mobilizing more and more Russian men, Russian President Vladimir Putin is simply prolonging his defeat. He wants to postpone it for as long as possible. Your opinion?
1: Well, I think there's, to a degree, yes, I would say I would agree. I think he's postponing the inevitable. um, Russia is not going to achieve its military goals. But I think they're also holding on for a miracle. Russia is hoping that the uh, Ukrainian unity will weaken, Ukraine's will to fight will weaken, that they will eventually become sickened by the number of casualties that Ukraine has suffered. They will become simply um, unable to accept any more losses that Ukraine's resolve will weaken. That's one thing that they very much hope for. And again, you must remember, Russia's been told for many, many years that Ukraine is very weak, that Ukraine is very disunited, that most Ukrainians are very eager to become Russians. And so there is a reason why they believe this nonsense. They're very invested in such nonsense. And so, of course, they believe that's a possibility. Perhaps even more likely from a Russian perspective in terms of their expectations is a collapse in Western support for Ukraine. Russia has a long, long experience of weak Western responses, going back to the the wars with the Chechens, but especially, I think, Georgia in 2008, when Russia and the West basically said, no problem, let's continue as we did before. Then Crimea, of course, with a very weak response from the West, then Donbass with a very weak response from the West. So Russia has all expectations that the West, again, sooner or later, will say, okay, never mind, let's get back to business, we want to make money, we're not really that interested in these principles of Of international law or Ukrainian sovereignty. We want to make money because money is what makes us tick. So Russia is desperately hoping they're not just simply fighting to postpone the inevitability of defeat. I think they're fighting to buy time because they still believe that the West will crumble and will basically cease to support Ukraine and will leave Ukraine naked and vulnerable. And then it will be a question of simply destroying Ukraine, crushing Ukraine.
0: When the Western partners provide Ukraine with new weapons, there are some hesitations and speculations that Ukrainians might not be able to quickly learn them. I mean, sophisticated Leopard battle tanks, Patriot air defense systems and F-16 fighter jets. Is it really like this? Well, this is an
1: excuse, obviously. Nobody believes that. I think that the Western commentators don't believe that and Ukrainians certainly don't believe that. It's obviously just an excuse. In reality, the West is still very hesitant to incur any retaliation from Russia. They're not afraid of Russia in the sense of Russia achieving a victory over them, that they could be militarily attacked by Russia. But what they are afraid of is hybrid responses from Russia, that Russia would engage in third party terrorism or cyber attacks or infrastructure attacks or anything along those lines, which Russia has Previously shown a an aptitude for and an appetite for. So what we've seen again and again in terms of Western support for Ukraine is all the Western countries moving very very slowly in unison together because no one wants to go very far ahead of the others because they fear that by doing that they would make themselves a target for Russian retaliation. Again, they're not afraid of Russia in the sense that they fear defeat, but they just don't want to have a problem. They don't need to have that. They're living in peace. They are not directly threatened by Russia. They don't want to have to face their electorates, democratic societies, and explain why people in France or Germany or America or Britain are dying because of a war in Ukraine. Now, they can argue why it's necessary. They can defend that position. I believe that it's, of course, I'm firmly convinced that it's the right position to support Ukraine. I think most people are in Western countries. Nevertheless, if people start dying in terrorist attacks or millions of people are cut off from power, from cyber attacks, or anything like that, there will be repercussions and awkward questions. And in a democracy which is at peace, there's a very, very low level of tolerance for such things. So that is the main reason why the rest and response is so slow and hesitant. So that all these countries are moving in the direction they know they must move, but they're afraid to get too fast and to get out of step with their partners because they don't want to become a target.
0: Let me switch gears and ask your opinion about the recent anti-corruption wave in Ukraine. Many officials in the Defense Ministry, Customs, Tax Service and regional administrations resigned and are under investigation for alleged bribery. Do you think President Zelensky is serious about fighting corruption? Or no one would be really punished as it was many times before?
1: Well, I think anti-corruption campaigns in Ukraine tend to be as serious as the the country's Western partners make them. I think before 2014, they weren't serious at all, and then there was no pressure for them to be so. After 2014, Ukraine relied quite significantly on Western support, and therefore there was some progress made in anti-corruption steps. The banking system, for example, there were extremely successful anti-corruption reforms, were extremely successful anti-corruption reforms in the energy sector. Other areas were not successful. The judicial system was very unsuccessful in terms of anti-corruption reforms. But where there was success, it tended to be through a combination of international pressure from Ukraine's partners and civil society pressure within Ukraine. Now, the situation today has completely changed in terms of the level of pressure. There's clearly now absolutely no room for Ukraine to fall out or argue with its Western partners because the country has become almost entirely dependent on Western military aid. So at this point, the West has unique and unprecedented leverage on Ukraine. Uh, And I think Zelensky understands this very well. He understands that he cannot afford to have major corruption scandals. He cannot afford to risk headlines in newspapers saying that Ukraine is stealing the money that the West is giving to the country, that Ukraine is back to its old ways. This will be a gift to Russia And a gift to the political opponents in the West who do not want to support Ukraine or see an opportunity, especially the Republican Party in America, to undermine the international coalition in support of Ukraine. So Zelensky simply can't afford it. It's too dangerous. And I think he recognizes that. Now, whether he would have done this otherwise is very questionable. But I think at this point, he really has little choice. And I think we're seeing now with a very demonstrative response, with a very clear, no-nonsense response, People are being removed, people are being forced to resign, people are being replaced. Um, And I think that will continue at this stage, because it really could be a decisive blow to the entire war if that isn't done. And if they lose the war, there's a very good chance Ukraine itself could cease to exist. So I think at this point, there's really little room for Zelensky to do anything else but fight very, very ruthlessly against any allegations of corruption.
0: In one of your recent installments in the Ukraine Alert blog on the Atlantic Council website, you wrote that Putin is facing defeat in the information war, because his propaganda doesn't work anymore. But as far as I monitor the Ukrainian media landscape, Russia still bombards Ukrainians with fake news and deceptive messages. Do you see this?
1: No, I don't think so. Well, I think to a degree, of course it's active in Ukraine, but Again, we have to look at the comparatives. I mean, if you go back 10 years, the whole of the Ukrainian information space was controlled by Russia, more or less, or certainly a large portion of it. Uh, Most Ukrainian TV channels filled approximately half to three quarters of their entire programming with content that was made in Russia. it wasn't news content. But it was cultural content, which was very, very heavily propagandized. So Ukrainian media consumption, people consuming Ukrainian media were actually living within the so-called Russian world. Um, and, and that was true across the board. You know, Russia had a dominant position on social media networks, of uh, Contacti and, and Adma Klasniki. The Russian websites were dominant and they were full of propaganda. So Russia's position was far more, was far stronger in the information space in Ukraine in previous years. Uh, again, this has declined dramatically since 2014 and then now since 2022. Even after the um, the, the seizure of Crimea and the war in East Ukraine, we had uh, Medvedchuk's attempts to establish a number of TV stations or to take over TV stations and turn them into Russian propaganda platforms. But it was striking, I think, even then, this is in 2017, 18, 19, um, they didn't openly promote Russian narratives uh, in terms of pro-Russian narratives. What they did is they very actively promoted anti-Western narratives. Um, So I think Russia is very clever. One of the few things where Russia is undisputably a world leader is in the dark art of propaganda and information warfare. Russia is extremely expert at, at this deceit. Um, they're very, very well practiced at it and they know exactly how to put a message across to persuade an audience. They've managed to do so in many countries, not just Ukraine. But I think that they are literally now in a position where their propaganda is struggling to gain traction. Poles you see in Ukraine now are very, very emphatic. Ukrainians have won nothing to do with Russia. Ukrainians want no compromises with Russia. They expect to win the war and they are committed to winning the war. People in the east and south of the country who were previously inclined to support Russia no longer do so. So I think Russia will always continue with these efforts um, and they will have some success. Uh, But I think if we look at the big picture, their information footprint in Ukraine and in the West is now greatly reduced. The one area where they are still making significant success is in the developing world in places like Africa and Asia.
0: My next question is about how to preserve democracy in Ukraine. Currently, martial law is prohibiting elections during the war, plus full administrative control from the top to the bottom. And that means, at least for me, that after the war Ukraine may require to build democracy all over again. Your opinion.
1: Well, I mean, we can't know at this stage. We cannot know exactly what circumstances will be, how the war will end. Certainly, there will be a moment where Zelensky has to make that decision. He will need to make the choice of where to go looking forward. What I would say was, I mean, Zelensky, okay, my impression is that he would wish to return to a fully democratic system. But let's say for some reason that he doesn't. I, I would not expect him to be successful. I think what you've got in Ukraine happening now is you have a... A generation of people who are sacrificing everything to win the war and to save the country's independence. Now, these people are fighting indirectly for democracy because they wish to see Ukraine as a free and as a European country, democratic country. That's clear. I think the vast majority of people understand that and recognize that anyone who wished to go against that would be seen as an enemy and they would fight hard against him. I would not expect that person to prosper. So even if, and I think it's a big if, I really don't think it would happen, but even if Zelensky were to try to establish himself as some kind of a dictator, who were to try to dominate the organs of power um, in a post-war situation, I think that he would fail. And it would actually, effectively, it would ruin the legacy that he is now building up as a great Ukrainian leader and as a world leader. So I I think it's unlikely. I think for a number of reasons, other than the morality of the issue, just from the political pragmatism of the issue, I think it's very unlikely.
0: Peter, in November, you were among a dozen foreign journalists in Ukraine who received the Honorable Ukrainian State Award from President Zelensky, the Order of Merit. What did you do for that?
1: (laughs) Uh, I don't know exactly. I received the award from Andrei uh, Yermak, the the head of the presidential administration. He said that they were very um, appreciative for the coverage that I've provided of the war and the support I've given and the um, putting Ukrainian perspectives, not Ukraine's as in the government, but perspectives from ordinary Ukrainian people. I would like to think that it was because I've always tried to portray Ukraine from a Ukrainian perspective, uh, which may sound obvious, but actually I think a lot of the coverage of Ukraine over the last 10, 20 years, you know, going back to the early days of independence, has tended to come with a very Russian slant on it, especially when it's been written by international correspondents who are based in Moscow, which was the habit until very recently. So I think my coverage has often stood out in the sense that I've given a very specifically Ukrainian perspective. Uh, and I think that was something that they, that was recognized. And um, so it was, it was very rewarding for me. I was very appreciative to receive that recognition.
0: On this positive note, I'm ending this episode of my podcast, Ukraine Decoded. My name is Viktor Kovalenko. And my guest was Peter Dickinson from Ukraine's capital, Kiev. He is an editor and publisher. Peter, thank you for joining me. Fantastic. Okay, well, thanks very
1: much. I appreciate it. Thanks for, thanks for the invitation.
0: Dear listeners, you can support this podcast by donating to my PayPal at paypal.me slash Kovalenko. Goodbye and so long.